0: And welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I research things that I think are cool and I talk about them. And if you think they're cool too, maybe you'll listen to me talk about them. I'm Melissa,
1: and I'm Everett.
0: So this episode, as you've seen from the title, um, is going to be about some ways we uh, use and have used animals in medicine. Um, so I'm going to acknowledge right off the bat that's kind of a loaded loaded, controversial topic. Um and I'm in this for the fun facts, you know, the, the cool, interesting things. Um and as much as I uh have thought about my position on this issue, I'm not gonna let's not talk about it. Let's let's just talk about some really cool things. Um, nothing boring. Everyone knows my used in medical labs and yada yada yada. I wanna mm-hmm. I wanna get into some like Fun things. A little lesser known. A little lesser known facts. I'm not going to touch too much on medical ethics. I'm not talking about older experiments or older awful scientists like Pavlov. Right. From times when, you know, human ethics weren't even a thing in research, let alone animal ethics. We're just going to leave well enough alone there. Um, the only thing I, I will say is, you know, on the moral side that, you know, I'm excited for the day in the future when science advances to the point we don't need to test so much stuff on animals. But... Of course. We have, and there's been some really cool things.
1: All right. So how about you teach me something?
0: All right. So, you know, as I was kind of saying, I'm just going to be blunt about it. Most, if not all, of our medical knowledge and science has directly or indirectly come from animal research, animal testing. This is just how we do science. This is the first steps. Um, there are specific animals from each like type of animal uh amphibian okay. reptile fish or whatever that are called model okay. organisms that are those organisms are like the example of all arthropods or all um like birds in lab work okay um, if, so for mammals we're talking about mice for like bugs and vertebrates talking about dros- drosophila the little fruit flies they yeah. have lots of different colored eyes and they're so annoying every summer um in our house at least i don't know about you guys um, for fish, I'm pretty sure it was a uh, zebra zebrafish. Uh, and for try to remember if I if I know them from school still. This is from a long time ago. I didn't look this up. I don't really remember the rest of them. Those are the model organisms. I remember those things get studied a lot. Cool. Um, so for example, uh, diseases big big whole diseases or some very small ones we've gotten a lot of answers by studying how they work in animals like drug addiction i'm gonna start there um animals become addicted to drugs and alcohol just like we do um they have brains why not in fact cocaine like how addictive it was um we first figured that out in animals when a person stops using cocaine um withdrawal isn't going to cause, like, really bad physical symptoms. Okay. Which is traditionally how we've measured addiction. Like, traditionally Mm, as in in the past before we... um, We we don't know a lot now, but before we knew more about what was going on, um, animal studies actually showed if monkeys were given a choice of receiving cocaine or food, then they would administer cocaine to themselves to the point of starvation. Wow. So, clearly they were behavioral, like behaviorally addicted to Mm -hmm. cocaine we just physically couldn't see that right um so then we start this is finally when we're kind of starting to realize that addiction is um not always a visible like visible type of of illness the way that we used to think Uh, and because animals can become addicted to drugs then we use them as a model for the addiction process so for example cocaine going back to cocaine it has been found to block the uptake of uh, dopamine, so you know, a chemical in our brains, yeah. um, from, from like the nerve junctions where it's received. It blocks that reception of dopamine. Um, so now, animal researchers are investigating some compounds that would reduce the craving for drugs um, by kind of blocking that um, process, I guess.
1: You're kind of like replicating the effects within the brain. Well, no. yeah, just
0: just not letting your brain get high, basically stop all the dopamine from, okay, from working. And so, if you don't get that high feedback, why would you keep consuming cocaine?
1: Has that been effective? Like,
0: oh, we are not there yet. Got it. We're on the animal testing stages. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, we use animal studies to develop actual behavioral treatments for humans, so not just drugs or whatever. Um, we've, the strategies that we've used to successfully treat, help drug addiction. Um, like a lot of those strategies were developed by using animals. Um, like, like studying the reinforcing mechanisms, like that encourages or discourages behaviors. We, we do that with animals first. Um, animal research has also helped learn about addictive behavior and how, like, maybe the environment that you're in can influence that. So a really interesting example was, um, they were looking at heroin overdoses, Okay. And they were using rats, and um, they noticed so if rats are given repeated heroin injections in increasing dosage in the same environment, same cage, okay, same home, they're at home. They're taking more and more heroin. They develop tolerance, just like humans do. You could have bigger, okay. bigger doses. So they easily survive a big dose that could have been lethal if it was the first dose they got. Right. Okay. So, then if you put them in a new environment, a novel environment, okay, put that same high dose in them, then they are much more likely to overdose and die.
1: Okay, it's like the extra simulation of the novel environment does something,
0: maybe. Yes, right. exactly. That's kind of has taught us that there's something we need to think about um, for drug overdose deaths and also just have more places maybe equipped with um naloxone is it naloxone
1: i don't remember the exact name but you know know what what you're talking about about.
0: yeah the drug that reverses overdoses um heart surgery is pretty it's pretty well everything's pretty new medically speaking Um, in the grand scheme of things yes (laughs) We didn't know much until recently. We've made this clear on the, on this podcast. Yeah. Um, so in the 19th century, there wasn't really much to do to treat heart disease. Um, we couldn't work on the heart of a living person. So yeah, that's it. You're done. Um, we didn't know anything about actual medicine either, like drugs. So yeah, no, you have no chance. But around, you know, turn of like 18th, 19th century here, um, some surgeons start to ho- operate on dog hearts. Okay. They start learning the techniques. They practice. Um... Especially repairing heart valves because damaged valves were um, one of the biggest heart issues back in the day because it's a common symptom of rheumatic fever and a lot of other old tiny illnesses is that your heart valves get damaged. It was so a, it was
1: a symptom of another of okay. other
0: like, yeah like you survived childhood illness good for you but did you know in twenty years your heart valves are going to give up because of that like that viral infection okay. whatever you had right. Oh, viruses. Um, and so by 1923, they had advanced the heart valves kind of repair, uh, to the point that they used it successfully on a 12 year old girl. But, um, she was in a coma, but she survived. I, I know. The Ethics. Coma
1: beforehand? Too? Ethics. Yes. Okay. They
0: specifically picked her for a reason. Sure. And, um, she lived for another four years and okay. died of pneumonia. No- Pneumonia. Wow. I read my notes. Not pneumonia. I read my notes out of the corner of my eye and I saw the P and it was too late. I was was saying it. Um, So anyways, slight success. That's okay. Still pretty limited though, because we couldn't really stop the heart for any amount of time. This was an issue. How are you going to work on it if you can't stop it? So... Researchers started working with animals in the 30s to, to make pumps to circulate and oxygenate the blood independently of the heart. Um, it's really complicated and <laughs> involves knowing about like blood clotting and transfusions and, you know, being an expert in blood and we had to figure out what pumping the blood did. Does, does, is it actually as good as the heart? Like, is there something we're missing? Like, are they doing okay? Like, how long can we do it for? There's so much to figure out and that was all done all done with animals. Um and then yeah, in 1953 right. the first operation using a heart lung machine was performed on a human. So um kind of old my <laughs> surgery heart surgery is is almost 70 years 70 years old now and yeah, it was is definitely all thanks to animals that we figured that out. Um another example of a disease and then I'm going to get into like specific animals cuz that's cooler. Um <laughs> a disease called uh, Myasthenia gravis. Have you heard of that one?
1: I don't. Well, I mean, maybe, but so I, don't I mean, think it's so. not.
0: It's not common. Okay. It's a rare disease. Um, it causes really bad fatigue and muscle weakness, and people do die of it. Uh, it's caused by um, like a, a breakdown in how the nerves are communicating between, like the muscles and the nerves, how they're kind of communicating. Okay. Um, and so, like most illnesses, we really were only able to understand it. By using animals, um, the story begins with something called curare, which I hope I'm saying correctly. Sure. And it's a it's a common name for like the poisons, like uh, poison darts, like uh, that indigenous people in like Central and South America would have made. Sure. It, yeah.
1: yeah okay. Um,
0: made from like alkaloid plant extracts. Yeah. So lots different plants were used, and they were just all kind of known as curare. Um. So. Basically, French researchers figured out that they, well, they used frogs to start with. I know that sounds French frogs. Anyways, they used <laughs> frogs to start with and and then moved on to other animals. But they found in the frogs that the curare blocks um, the, the transmission of a signal from your nerve to your muscle. Okay. So that's what curare is doing. But we didn't really understand that transmission of signal anyways until the 1930s. So... This was like, oh, look, this does this thing. We don't know anything about it, though. But it was it was important because um, English researchers then figured out that, by using animals, that nerves communicate with muscles by releasing a chemical called acetylcholine.
1: Okay. That's the
0: mechanism by which your nerves and muscles talk to each other.
1: And that's a pretty big breakthrough at that point.
0: Yes. So, yeah. So acetylcholine activates receptor molecules on the muscles. It's, it's a... There's a lot of steps, sure. But this is like the, the the first one, and this is the new chemical for us, and we're uh, we're excited. So we've realized this, and then the friend, well, somebody realized then. So curare is then somehow blocking the acetylcholine's action, paralyzing the muscle. Okay, this is this is a lot of steps to get to the end here, but this is a pretty cool t- story. So next, what's going to happen is two chemists from Taiwan. Are going to find a toxin in, in snake venom that paralyzes animals by blocking acetylcholine receptors. Cool. Yeah. So the the, the medical researchers that are researching myasthenia gravis have an idea, um, and they they inject this toxin from a snake into electric eels.
1: Oh. Okay. Yeah. Similar looking animals.
0: <laughs> I was super lost. I searched Google. I sat actually couch and complained to you that I kept searching Google and no one could explain to me, wait, why did we just put snake venom in electric eel? No one really explained the purpose of this step.
1: Trying to make super electric um, eels.
0: So I'm going to tell you what I think now that I've, I feel like I had a breakthrough. Okay. But let's clarify that I'm not an expert. So electric eels have a lot of acetylcholine receptors in the electricity generating organ.
1: Okay. Sure.
0: They have a lot of them. So, they inject them with the toxin, and then they're going to harvest the acetylcholine receptors from the electric heels.
1: Mm.
0: So, I've, I've, I've understood that what, what's happening is they're using the toxin to first block the receptors off, and then they're... So, they're harvesting blocked receptors. Okay. Blocked acetylcholine receptors. Probably so that they don't compete with the real acetylcholine receptors in the next thing they're going to inject it into, which is a rabbit. So... They injected a snake toxin into the electric eel, electric eel receptors into the rabbit. I know.
1: Interesting. I, I feel okay. like
0: you're confused. Keep going. Okay. So the rabbits developed a syndrome that was identical to myasthenia gravis when they were injected with these blocked acetylcholine Got it. receptors.
1: Okay. It's like a not not enough acetyl. It's not getting enough of it's getting through.
0: Um, no, you need this next sentence. You would need this next sentence. So the rabbits start making antibodies to the injected receptors, right? They're Mm -hmm. foreign. Of course. Yes. The antibodies start attacking their own receptors. Got it. Effectively blocking them, like like inflating them, whatever. Making it so that acetylcholine cannot bind there. So that causes muscle weakness because your muscles can't do what your nerves tell them to do. And that's the characteristic of the disease. So they had, had understood that myasthenia gravis was an autoimmune disease where a person's own immune system will attack the acetylcholine receptors in their muscles.
1: Yeah, okay. Very cool.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, it was Absolutely. a long, it feels like a long, we just had to complete the it? circle. That's all. A long walk for a short drink of water or some expression, something like that. Yeah, somewhere. Okay. Yeah. It's in there somewhere. It's you close.
1: got it. Keep going.
0: Yeah. So, um, now, we treat by improving signal transmission or suppressing the immune system, um, but they are doing more animal research to try to find a more permanent cure. Um, in our episode about venom, mm-hmm. Everett, a long, long time ago. Yes. I'm sure you remember. In a galaxy far away. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you remember like a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. um we talked about some different types of medications that could be made with venom hmm. at some point yeah you remember that okay cool
1: mostly anti-venoms but yeah keep going
0: <laughs> no do you not remember all the pain medication I all do, the yeah. different okay good yeah. he's just he's just joshing you guys can't see the, the smirk that comes on his face whenever i finally fall for his his line and then i look at him and he smirks and i go oh i fell for it again that um, happens. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about some more cool example of venom drugs because they're cool.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's
0: all the reason I need.
1: Venom drugs.
0: Well, okay. But we're going to go animal by animal here. Okay. I like animals. We're going to start with the animals.
1: This things. is true, you do.
0: Brazilian arrowhead viper is mm. what we're going to start with. So it's also called the Brazilian pit viper. Okay, sure. Um. <laughs> so venom from the Brazilian arrowhead was... The basis for developing one of the first ACE inhibitors. ACE inhibitors um, treat hypertension, uh, so you know, like high, high blood pressure, and they treat congestive heart failure. That's hmm. what we use ACE inhibitors for. So they're pretty important. Yeah. Um, all right, might get a little complicated, but we'll, we'll we'll try to get through it. So researchers isolated a molecule called Bradykinin Potentiating Factor.
1: That's what the chemicals called.
0: The molecule they isolated is called bradykinin potentiating factor.
1: Okay, that doesn't really follow normal naming convention, but okay, keep going.
0: It really does. This is totally how people name things in medical research and like in biological research. Not <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> bradykinin potentiating factor? What's wrong with that name?
1: Yeah, it doesn't really tell me what's in it, but okay, keep going.
0: Well, if you were in medical science and you knew what bradykinins were, you would definitely know what that meant.
1: Oh, that's not a name.
0: Bradykinins are, I'm, I was giving my next sentence. I was well, going to explain go it. I don't assume everyone knows what a bradykinin. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Brady, all oh, you need to know, you have threw me off, is that bradykinins are a protein that cause blood vessels to dilate and will lower blood pressure. Okay. So here we go. They isolated the bradykinin potentiating factor from the viper venom. And they found it's related to a class of molecules that stop ACE from blocking bradykinins. Now, for the thing you also wanted to know, what ACE stands for, angiotensis converting enzymes. Mm-hmm. So ACE inhibitors stop bradykinins from being blocked, and bradykinins will lower your blood pressure and stuff. Okay. Okay?
1: Still don't know what, like, the actual... Atoms and those chemicals, but that's okay. Did you I'll leave need
0: it. to know that?
1: Well, as a chemist, yeah. <laughs> that's the important part. That, obviously, that would be
0: millions of like letters long. Yeah, huh. that's the point. Isn't
1: that the exciting part?
0: Molecules in the body are the same as your molecules in chemistry. They're I made know. of a lot of things. They're much bigger.
1: They are much bigger.
0: I don't want to try to find out the chemical formula of a bradykinin for you.
1: Fine. You. Can I mean, Google it, that sound, that it sounds pretty. Sounds just as exciting as like memorizing the digits of pi, which. Sounds pretty Does exciting.
0: Sounds <laughs> <laughs> So, bradykinin potentiating factors um, were eventually developed into a drug called captopril, used to treat hypertension, cardiac conditions, and preserve kidney function in diabetics.
1: Great.
0: I mean, if you understood any of that, you probably thought it was cool.
1: Yeah.
0: I thought it was cool. The next uh, venom animal we will talk about is the gila monster.
1: Oh, uh, fun
0: which is a lizard yeah and it lives in deserts it does it, so it lives in the southwest u.s like northern mexico around there um and it's it's actually only one of two species of lizards on earth that produce venom maybe really? who knows we're always fighting about if kono dragons actually make venom or right. if other or if it, their <laughs>
1: saliva it's not a venom or yeah,
0: yeah. there's and then some things are just like is it a venom or like the remember the slow loris in the venom episode? Yeah. Didn't really have venom. It was like a weird thing in his armpits, and then if it licked it with its saliva, it would make a weird venom after the, anyways. Um right. so so maybe on the one of two species, but it's a very few lizards make venom. Sure. And a healer monster makes venom.
1: It, even if we were to include them, it's yeah. still a short list.
0: Exactly. Okay. Um so healer monsters like lizards, um, are cold blooded. Correct. In the winter, they survive by just keeping very still, you know.
1: Building a fire.
0: I, I think they probably wish they knew how to do that. Yeah. Probably really hard with their little lizard hands. They don't have opposable thumbs.
1: No, but maybe telekinesis or something.
0: That just as likely as opposable thumbs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hibernate. But you know, the, you know sure. the gist of it. We live in Canada. Animals hibernate. So to save energy, though, it goes even further. Like... A lot of animals that hibernate do this, but, you know, shuts down all the body systems internally. Like guts, glands, pancreas, like the exact words they use, stop being juicy. Like they (laughs) say, stop being juicy. They don't produce like the normal enzymes, the normal acids, the normal things that your body produces. It just stops. Yeah. Um, and then so when the Gila monster wakes up in the spring, its venom somehow like unlocks its hormones. It's like it needs venom internally to like dissolve something that's anyways, it unlocks its hormones with its own venom. And these hormones are responsible for making its organs secrete things again. So Dr. Zhang Eng discovered this hormone in 1992 and he named it Excendin 4. Do you like that name better? Does that tell you what's in it? No. <laughs> no. I know we don't do that in biology.
1: But it sounds like there's four of them.
0: <laughs> I, I'm not clear on that. Four um, chains. Um, the venom. Who knows?
1: four carbons. <laughs> it's
0: the fourth try of naming something yeah. in, in his career. Great. Um, the venom hormone was was really similar to a hormone that we produce in our digestive tract which is responsible for increasing insulin production when your blood sugar's high. Okay. And so, he thought, "Oh hey, Diabetes. Um, he also found Extendin 4 remained like active in your body longer than the human version of the hormone does. Huh. So in 2005, the FDA approves a drug called Bieta. Bieta. One of those two, I'm confident. Okay. Um, which is derived from the Gila monster venom. That's cool. It's an injectable medicine for type 2 diabetes. And uh, it also helps patients lose weight. Oh,
1: because
0: it slows the emptying of the stomach, decreases your appetite. You know, like right. everything follows. If your blood yeah. sugar, like if you could just kind of slow down what's going on, you wouldn't be as hungry as like as fast. And so a lot of chain effects, kind of like, really helps. And as you know, a lot of type two diabetics um, could could lose some weight. Is mm. is generally a recommendation,
1: right?
0: Yeah. Um, so on to one of my, my, maybe my favorite of this episode, I think.
1: Within top two. Definitely. Within top three. Certainly.
0: With already between. Well, you
1: seem you seemed a little hesitant about even top two for a moment. No, there.
0: definitely on top okay. two. I just I, Got I had it. to think about it. I don't want to answer and be foolhardy, but.
1: Okay. I thought about
0: it, and horseshoe crabs are one of my top two for sure. Okay. Um, they are unique and amazing, and True. um, as is the case with many living things that were named. Long ago, the name doesn't necessarily make sense because not really a crab. They're not a crab at all. Yeah. Um, but they do somewhat resemble a horseshoe when they're flipped over. Yeah. So I'm gonna give them that
1: one. It should have just been called like walking rocks or something.
0: Well, I'm gonna tell you the internet. Um, the internet name. I, I did do. not make this. Okay. Um, tactical spider
1: spider okay
0: it's a spider in a tank uh, yeah because
1: uh, yeah okay
0: because let's clarify here the cl- closest relative to a horseshoe crab is a spider
1: oh see i didn't realize that was the closest relative okay
0: this is an arachnid not does necessarily it have... a spider okay
1: does but... <laughs> the horseshoe crab have eight legs i thought they had six for some reason
0: they're they're not arachnids okay their closest living relative is arachnids
1: sure?
0: Not they don't have a lot of close, very close living relatives no. because they're so old. So crabs and horseshoe crabs—they're both arthropods. But that's correct. That's the the division of life called phylum. That is almost at the very top of where we start dividing life. So there are a lot of things that are arthropods that aren't very related to each other. Of course. So crabs and horseshoe crabs are both arthropods, but crabs are crustaceans.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, horseshoe crabs are something called chelicerates. Sounds cool. Um, that's just the same level of description as crustacean. just so everyone knows. They're chelicerates, and uh, that chelicerates are closely, most closely related to arachnids. So, okay. tactical spider. Great. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, they're ancient. They're walking fossils. Um, yeah. The fossil record for horseshoe crabs goes back 480 million years. And from what we can tell, they haven't changed almost at all. Probably a little, but, you know. Sure. We can't see it. And that great age is important to medical researchers because the theory, which I don't know if it's like 100% proven, but they're going on the assumption that because they've lived millions and millions and millions of years, they've been exposed to an awful lot of microbes and have an awful lot of immune yeah. memory to like everything. Um, I guess that would the make theory. sense. That's the
1: yeah.
0: Um, there are four species of horseshoe crab. Uh, the one that we're going to talk about that's used mainly for, for this medicinal purpose is the Limulus polyphemus. And... <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. For some reason, polyphemus um, sounds very familiar from Greek mythology. But I'll, I'll look that up later. Okay. The Limulus polyphemus lives in North America. And it was kind of the Gulf of Mexico, the uh, Atlantic coast, maybe down into central a little bit, but mostly just along the, along the east coast there. Their blood is the... Uh, is the reason that is that we're we're talking about them right now is their blood it's very special yeah and it is blue and it is a very like if you're thinking of blue blood this is probably not the color you're thinking of of blue is what I'm saying
1: okay
0: it's almost like a creamy blue it's almost like um like exactly the color of like melted blue ice cream you know like that blue bubblegum or like was there smurf ice cream? Yeah, like, like that, like that <laughs> okay. really.
1: Melted Smurf ice cream. I mean, I don't think I've had Smurf ice cream, but I can picture it.
0: Someone described it that way on the internet when I was researching this. Okay. Um, but like, you know, like that light blue cotton candy ice cream. Yeah. Bubblegum or whatever. Yeah, it's like a it's all it looks like melted ice cream. It's like kind of a creamy looking light blue. It's beautiful. Um we have hemoglobin. We talked about this. Yep. Our blood is red. We definitely talked about that. Our blood is red because. Iron is what hemoglobin uses to hold on to oxygen and carry it around for you. Right. their blood is blue because they have something called hemocyanin to carry their oxygen. And hemocyanin uses... Everett, I'm looking at you, chemistry person. Cyanide? Oh. Copper. Hemocyanin? Cyanin is copper.
1: Oh. Okay. It's been a while.
0: That and in the 1700s, people just... Made up names that don't conform to any naming standard, and they had sure. to fix all that. But I think it's an older type of uh, etymology, not a. Got it. Not necessarily a chemistry term. I just thought you might have heard it.
1: I mean, I might have, but I definitely didn't think of copper, so.
0: But that's what makes their blood blue. Okay. I probably, if I just asked you to guess what makes blood blue, you probably would have got to copper eventually. There aren't that many.
1: Yeah, I probably would have started at cobalt, things. but then i would be enough. like, that's not a very yeah. that's not a common enough. Mineral, I would have got to copper pretty quick.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I, I expect that. Um, but that's not the special thing about their blood that we, you know, use oh, it for. It's fine. just cool. Uh, it's not like we need copper or something. We can get that. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: pretty widely uh, available.
0: So I'll just say right now, every person in the world who has received a vaccine, an antibiotic, a medical device implant, IV tubing, any, anything, pacemaker, um, you have had your medical safety health insured by the horseshoe crab
1: good so they issue the policies
0: they are the hero that we need but don't deserve god is that how that goes something like that i'm trying to come up with a lot of sayings today that just aren't coming to me um so we're going to talk about the protagonist of our story is one dr frederick bang oh fred name, dr yeah. bang I know. I just want to say it a lot. Um, I don't think you needed to know his name. Oh. Probably would have made sense without it, but how but do you, it's Much better now. How do you not? Yeah. yeah. He's our protagonist, or possibly antagonist, if you are mm. a horseshoe crab.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm I just see saying. Where this is going I'm on. just saying. Okay.
0: Um, he had a really specific interest in marine life and studying it to see how you could maybe apply the things that he has learned from marine life to humans. That was his thing. And so he wanted to look at the circulatory system of marine animals, because there are some marine animals, like the horseshoe crab, that he can, you can study their circulation while they're alive. Like you can see it, you can see it. You mm-hmm. don't need, you know, a cadaver or whatever. Right. Um, can't do that in humans. Can't no, see it while it's alive. That. Um, I mean, we've got some imaging, but you know what I mean. I, I know, but. And so he was doing this work in horseshoe crabs to try to understand how our circulatory system works. Um, Let it be said that it's very different. Yeah. This is a very different type of uh, circulation. Um, In humans, ours is, is a closed system. Correct. We have blood vessels. You know, we have capillaries, arteries. We have veins. That is the only place our blood should be.
1: Correct. We contain it very closed system. Got it. It's probably the best descriptor.
0: Yes. Less, that's not the word. I'm not going to say less evolved. That is incorrect terminology. Let's go with just more primitive. Um, creatures haven't evolved, had, you know, got this, got this going yet. Right. They, they go with an open circulatory system. Um, they have blood vessels, but then internally they have big empty spaces called sinuses. Mm-hmm. Where you know, I mean, we do, we do have sinuses.
1: Ours just aren't full, of but blood, they aren't
0: giant. Typically, pits in the center of our body that are just like a big pool of blood that are touching all of our organs, so the blood can just diffuse back and forth. Like things can diffuse, so it's very open. It's touching everything. the The barriers are are not the same. Correct. Right. So, um. If a bacteria gets in us, it has to go through our blood vessels. And what is in your blood vessels? Your white blood cells. Right. You meet the invader, maybe hopefully right at the cut, injury, and, and you stop them and you're good. If it's a horseshoe crab and they got like a little crack in their shell.
1: It's exposed to a large cavity right away. Exposed and to all the organs. Everything. Yeah.
0: Everything, right? Um, so that makes them pretty vulnerable. That's bad. Clearly, they wouldn't still be alive if they didn't have a way to combat Combat this clearly glaring error in their (laughs) circulatory system. Um, So they rely, obviously, on a different mechanism. And Dr. Bang comes in um, and he's going to figure it out. He noticed that this crab had died, unfortunately. Horseshoe crab. It's not really a crab. I should stop saying crab. Uh, Yeah. He noticed the tactical spider had died and all of its blood was clotted. They go on to describe how it's like blue jelly. Anyways, I don't know. You don't want to read them talking about it. blue, Blue jelly-like mass. It's kind of interesting, but kind of weird when you think about it.
1: Yeah.
0: He examined the crab and found out it was infected with Vibrio, like a strain of Vibrio bacteria, which is related to cholera. Okay. I don't know why I wanted to include that. I just did. That's That's the only Vibrio bacteria I know. Um, he examined other horseshoe crabs that died and didn't see the clotting reaction. Um, and he knew that those crabs had died from bacteria, so he knew, okay, this can't be all bacteria that do this then.
1: Right. It's a different reaction.
0: Right. He realized it only happens with gram-negative bacteria.
1: I, okay. Explain gram-negative.
0: I am about to. I figured so. Okay. So one of the classifications of bacteria are literally just is it ground negative or ground positive that's one way we differentiate bacterias and all that means is we did, like we did this in first year you you stain them you just put a stain on them mm-hmm. you look under the microscope and if they're pink oh i didn't look up which one was which i don't remember basically one of them turns pink and one of them turns purple or like i think one of them stays pink and one of them turns purple like okay. there's a difference between. If I can remember, um, the cell membrane absorbing the dye or not, kind of thing. Okay. Like, so that, right, okay. and then we so classify it's... the bacteria from there, and it's one way that we relate bacteria to each other. This is the—that's all you need to know.
1: So whether it—it's the mechanism at which it diffuses, or if it'll diffuse a certain the dye. type of yes. dye, yeah, it okay, is.
0: yes. Um. So he figured out gram-negative bacteria are the problem, and next he does an experiment where he heats. Like, he heat kills the gram-negative bacteria,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then he introduces it to the crab blood. Um, and even the dead bacteria made the blood clot. So, what the heck? Right.
1: <laughs>
0: he enlisted the help of a hematologist, uh, a blood expert mm-hmm. named Dr. Jack Levin. Not as good of a name. I'll forgive him. Uh, he was coincidentally investigating endotoxins. And endotoxins are made by gram-negative bacteria. And they're responsible for some really bad things in humans, like sepsis and extreme Mm, fever and dangerous drops in blood pressure. Um, Basically, with gram-negative bacteria, the endotoxins are... The bacteria themselves maybe aren't doing that much. They release these things and then that's it, kind of thing. Some... All bacteria are different. Right. Okay. So when Dr. Bang tells Dr. Levin what happened with the, like, clotting crab blood after he heat-killed the bacteria. Um, Dr. Levin right away thinks endotoxins, because endotoxins wouldn't be killed or harmed by the heat. Bacteria is dead, but they are, they always make these things, right? So they had already made endotoxins. Yeah. They're dead. They don't do anything. The endotoxin must be what's doing it. That was his only explanation. Um, so, Crabs. Tactical spiders. Horseshoe crabs. Right. What's going on with this?
1: What is going on?
0: They have amoebocytes, which are their version of white blood cells.
1: Okay. Okay. Do they act in kind of a similar way?
0: Exactly. Okay. They engulf stuff. They repair damage. They move things around. They're filled with little things to explode and shoot out of them. Oh, that's fun. Oh, our white blood cells do that too. Don't
1: worry. Okay. It's still fun. Oh, yes.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Definitely fine. So, these amoebocytes are filled with these little granules which contain something called coagulogen. So, what they discover is that when endotoxin is sensed in the environment, in the blood, anywhere, these um, amoebocytes change shape to release all the granules inside. Like they're a circle and they turn into a C to let the granules yeah, yeah. come out of them. Um, the coagulogen instantly clots all the blood around it. And that would trap the bacteria and endotoxin where you are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then eventually, your amoebocytes, in this case, would, would, would go in and break down the foreign invaders and eventually you would heal.
1: Right. Unless it clotted it too much, too quickly.
0: Correct. That's, that's definitely what happened to that first crab that he noticed, like the whole, the yeah. whole thing. Um, so, to test for bacterial contamination, we used to use something called the rabbit pyrogen test. Which is um, still used today in, in specific circumstances, but is more rare. Uh, back in the early 1900s, we obviously didn't know how to check if something was sterile. We barely accepted mm. germ theory by then, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we knew to heat things up to kill the organisms. But as we just learned, heat doesn't kill endotoxins. It doesn't always kill everything that's going to make us sick. Um, So they started batch testing medicines by injecting rabbits. With, with those part medicines.
1: of the batch, yeah. Yes, and then every batch, batch, every was...
0: batch of whatever had to be tested. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, think about this. You can't have one rabbit. That result wouldn't be valid. So every batch needs multiple rabbits. And these rabbits have to be healthy. So you've got to take really good care of them and take really copious, you know, temperature, like checking all their vital signs all the time, make sure they're not sick before you give them this thing. Anyways, pyrogen means fever. So, the okay. rabbit pyrogen um, test, pyro fire. Yeah, that's all this the way back from, from, from Greek, I believe. Yeah. Um, you have to wait 48 hours after you inject the rabbit to see if it gets a fever. If all or most of the rabbits don't get fevers, you're probably safe. Right. Right. So, um, quite honestly, this is a terrible method, but yeah. it is what we had. And, um, it's definitely not nice for rabbits and it takes way too long and a lot of people's time and energy that was not necessary. So, so we needed a better way. We, we do need a better way to test for bacterial contamination. And what Bang and Levin found was another way of detecting bacterial endotoxin.
1: Specifically. Right.
0: Yes. So by the seventies, they, okay. <laughs> Limulus amoebocyte lysate is the product we're looking for here. Limulus is the horseshoe crop. amoebocyte is the little white blood cell, guys. Yeah. And a lysate is anything that comes out of a cell when it's broken. Because another word for breaking a cell is lysing it.
1: Okay.
0: If a cell is broken, it's lysed. So the limulus amoebocyte lysate is the stuff that comes out to it, coagulate.
1: This all makes sense. Right. Okay.
0: So they produce... La. I'm going to call it L-A-L instead of saying that over and over. They produce L-A-L. How do they do that? How would you go about doing this? Um, they take the blood from the crab. Yeah. They. Se-
1: seem that's where that was going, yeah. They
0: spin it in a centrifuge.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Separate out the components.
0: Separate out which components?
1: The amoebocyte? Lassatate? Yeah. No. Lass- uh
0: something you said lysate lysate um so the centrifuge will separate the liquid from the solids that's what we're doing here so we're taking all the plasma all the liquid parts of the blood and throwing that away okay and then we've got this like solid mass of cells left and what you're going to do with that is basically put them in water sterile water
1: like distilled water or something like that Uh,
0: maybe it I don't know sense. exactly the type of water they need because because okay. what you need is the cells are going to suck up the water. Good old osmosis. Oh,
1: so there's no water, water
0: inside the cells. Water always wants to even itself out. Basically, yeah. you want to have They it.
1: basically have a, a calculated saline solution. There. Okay.
0: Um. Well, I don't think they don't want the water to have any stuff in it because then the cells. Okay, won't. maybe
1: not salt, but it wouldn't. It likely wouldn't be as distilled
0: pure water as possible. I guess as. Mm. Like not having other um, particulates because that's what would make like less water would be absorbed in.
1: The issue is that anytime you have uh, a cell that has a semi-permeable
0: Permanente. membrane, yes.
1: and then you put in two pure of water, that the cells swell too large and pop.
0: Exactly what they wanted them to do.
1: Oh, so they they do use like <laughs> very okay great.
0: I was wondering what you were where are going with this? I'm I was like yes, They exactly. want it to, like, they want it to suck up all the water. Okay. No. So they
1: probably use very pure distilled <laughs> water then. Okay, great. I'm glad we're on the same page they would
0: like They would like the cells to get too full, burst open, and release the lysate. Got it. <laughs> I love that you just, like, came up with the procedure by saying that couldn't possibly what they're doing yeah, because well. of this reason, which is exactly correct. Yeah. That's some good logic there. It's pretty good. funny for me to listen to, knowing what was coming next, but it was good logic. Good. Um, so they... <laughs> Then they take the water, filter the coagulation out, they freeze dry it, turn it into Mm. like a powder, and they can just ship that. And then you can get a little package of the powder, you just, you know, reconstitute it, mix it with water or whatever, and add it to whatever you need to test.
1: Yeah, that's much faster than waiting 48 hours for a bunny to get a fever.
0: Well, and it's nicer to... to,
1: Well, to bunnies.
0: Right, yeah. So, that's the thing. We're clearly horseshoe crab vampires. Yeah. That is exactly what humans are now. Um, to them, I, I feel like Dr. Bang was, was maybe their, their Dracula. Yeah. Um, How much... Did you just look at my screen?
1: No.
0: Okay. How much do you think horseshoe crab blood goes for per... I'm so sorry. Per pint. Per pint. I found a... Stu- I found okay. an American measurement. It's, sorry. It's I'm so sorry.
1: On the black market or on the medical market?
0: No, on the medical market.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I'm not familiar with the medical market. Um, I'm going to go f- per pint. Let me think of like
0: <laughs> I don't, a beer glass. Um, <laughs> 20 ounces? Beers, Beers? I don't Beers are anywhere between 16 and 20 ounces and they call them all I a mean, pint. We, so I don't know what
1: We can continue down this road, but it's still going to be a wild guess. And you're so. so. between
0: 16 <laughs> and 20 ounces of blood. How much do you think that costs? And I know uh-huh. ounces also don't make sense, but...
1: $328.58 <laughs> USD.
0: Did you just look at my screen and see the actual answer? No, not yet. Oh, 15000 So that's close. So close. Yeah. So close. 15000 per pint. That's a useless metric, but there you go. It's okay. expensive. Um, sure. They pick up the crabs... They trawl on the beach, pick up the crabs, take them to the lab, and they get their blood, and then they put them back in the wild. So, is definitely an improvement on the rabbit test, where a whole lot of rabbits were getting sick, and it just like needed so many it's of more them. Like
1: a forced blood bank, like they're not, they're not killing the, they're just forcing them to donate blood.
0: Yeah, that's exactly okay. what it is. Um, and, sure. and then they try to release them so they don't catch the same one over and over I think they mark them so yeah so uh, there is organization like there are organizations that work with fisheries like all over the continent to make sure that the population is is high and that they're being protected I'm not going to say that none of them die while yeah, giving blood course. because it's stressful and they do um, yeah. it's very almost impossible to find any sort of actual figure for the death rate it could be as low I found from 5% 15 all the way up to 30 oh, percent but okay um that that was seemed like a uh outlier in the data okay. i would i would guess it was closer to the five percent just because that number came up more but maybe they were all citing each other no no yeah. um there are now labs that are trying to just keep them in captivity <laughs> and just keep bleeding them whenever they you know they let them have you know two weeks whatever it is between cycles and and these labs are claiming to have 100 percent survival rates um, but the tough part is like
1: they don't live in the wild anymore
0: well that's not necessarily the issue because they intend they intend to try to only breed the ones they have just like have a captive population where you never have to take more out of the wild but as you may know reproduction and captivity is is a tough nut to crack and i'm not yeah. sure we have have uh, have gotten there yet with the, with the horseshoe crab so they're cool and very important very, very, very important right now. Cool. Um, COVID, I'm sure you know. COVID testing, all the new drugs, all the new vaccines, that is all. They all use the LAL um, to check the purity of that. So that's really cool.
1: Excellent.
0: Um, next, let's jump into that word you're going to see from your title. Camelids.
1: Mm-hmm. Big mm-hmm. creatures with two humps.
0: Well, I was going to say, you're probably thinking camelids. That sounds familiar. Because you are an astute and careful listener who listens to all of our episodes and heard me say the word Camelids last episode.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And and Everett, what would these astute listeners have have heard Camelids in relation to last episode?
1: I don't want to spoil it for them.
0: (laughs) No, they already know. (laughs) What do you know? I don't know. Okay. That's fair enough. Um... (laughs) Camelids, as you know, include camels. They're a group of animals that are related. Excellent. Camels, llamas, alpacas, vacunas, guanacos. I think that's it. I don't really remember. Most of them live in South Central America. And sure. they used camelid fiber to make keepers. Got it. Yeah. That's why I talked about them last time. Um <laughs> I mean, you know me. I, I definitely managed to talk about zoology in, in a math episode.
1: I'm not surprised. There you go. Um,
0: in 1989, mm-hmm. there were two graduate students in Brussels that discovered something really cool about camelids. They were, you know, while they were testing their frozen camel blood serum, as one Most, uh, does, do. yeah. Know? Um, they found that they make conventional, normal type of antibodies. And also this secondary set of antibodies that seem to be unique to camelids called single-chain antibodies. And we're going to just call them scabs. Okay. Single-chain antibodies, scabs. So, for reference, an antibody looks like a capital Y.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Two arms and a body.
1: For catching.
0: <laughs> kind of? Uh, yeah, yeah. Heavy protein chains. There are heavy chains and light chains of proteins. Heavy protein chains make up pretty much the whole letter Y body.
1: Okay.
0: And the arms. And then light chains kind of stick onto the outside of each arm, kind of making them like a double arm. Like this. Normal capital Y with two extra lines on the on one extra line on each arm. Okay. Like chains on each side.
1: So, but, a, but a full chain at that point here. Like not sticking off like hairs, more like a.
0: Just like a letter Y, but you were going to outline it. Yes. And you okay. started up with the arms and you made two outlines on either side and didn't continue down to the body. Yep. Yeah, got it. Okay. So that's what a conventional antibody will look like. Um, these scabs don't have the light chains, they just have two heavy chains. That's it. Okay. Also on the scabs, There is just a very tiny, tiny area of the antibody used to recognize, like, the invading thing in your body. The the bad thing, the antigen. In contrast, we, you know, we have two heavy chains and two light chains. And our antigen binding site, so the part that recognizes the bad guy, Covers like the heavy and light chains, and, and it means that the whole, like a big part of it, is needed to defe- detect a bad okay. guy. Our antibodies are therefore larger. We've got these bulky arms. They have difficulty accessing small binding spaces on viruses or getting in certain cells or tight areas. Um, small, so these scabs, we call them nanobodies. Okay. Because, because they're small, small antibodies. Right. yes. Um, so these, these small nanobodies can navigate those tight spaces. Uh, monoclonal antibodies are something you probably heard about with COVID. So like giving people harvested antibodies is uh, a medical treatment, obviously. Um, this is a, just a different kind of harvested antibody. We can give people that can be better suited for a lot of different circumstances. So it was really exciting. Um, the other thing is on the nanobodies, they have a really long, what's called a binding domain. So it's like they have finger-like parts that that can help them grasp their target better. Be um, more effective. They're very, yeah. And then another huge advantage of nanobodies compared to, you know, monoclonal antibodies or antibodies from humans is that it's easy to manufacture. So um, we immunize a camelid with the antigen. With the with the COVID virus,
1: mm-hmm. put it in
0: there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this happened. Well, I think there's some stuff in development for COVID, so I, I can use it as an example. But put it in there. The camel's immune system is going to make the corresponding scab mm-hmm. to this antigen. We take a blood sample from the camelid. That's all. We just need a little blood sample. That's it. They're fine.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Hopefully, and the and the mRNA part of the scab. Is what we take. We take the okay. sequence. That's all we need. We just need the sequence. And we're going to amplify that mRNA. So just expand it. Just print copies over and over and over. More copies, more copies. And then we can actually produce them by putting the mRNA in like microorganisms like E. coli. To, to I mean,
1: if we're already duplicating them, that's not to grow them or, or not to multiply them or anything.
0: It's just making more and more and more of them. Like we, we just amplify the mRNA to get a big enough segment to give to the bacteria.
1: Who are more effective at, at multiplying just, them.
0: Well. Yeah, and they're cheap and okay. small and I
1: understand.
0: Don't need any care and, and yeah. they're they're really great little, you know, robots. Um, newer methods, see this is one of the coolest science advancements I'm talking about. We do not need the actual animal anymore. We are um once we make a scab i guess we would need sorry we would need the animals for any novel thing that comes along like covid mm-hmm. um but once we have the scab we are registering it in a like pre-produced library of nanobody mrna so now billions of sequences can be tested they can like discover if they have something in the library or not um we can do things way faster like way less expensive so it, a few things they're trying nanobodies for: are psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, different cancers, and viruses like COVID. There's a few different COVID nano studies, nanobody studies, uh, cool. happening. So that's that's very cool. Um, frogs, frogs are next. Mm-hmm. Frog, you may have heard of frog skin drugs that get you high. People talk about licking a frog and right. psychedelic. Whatever. I mean, only
1: through like cartoon references but also yeah.
0: yes me also lots of cartoons like to talk about it but yeah um but frog skin also produces antibiotics frog skin makes lots of things because frogs skin is not close to the environment they like breathe through it they do lots Correct. of stuff with their skin um but i mean every animal makes some kind of antimicrobial like proteins because otherwise they'd be extinct
1: yeah they wouldn't be able to fight off microbes that right. way but we,
0: we really haven't always thought about that or like known it like we just didn't even consider that
1: sure
0: that you know we should not make everything extinct because it might have something really cool and useful to us looking at it from a very humanist perspective
1: yeah
0: um I might have used that word wrong uh, well,
1: human-centric at least so back
0: in yeah back in the 1980s uh, they were con- conducting research on frog eggs at the NIH National Institute of Health in uh, in the US and Dr. Zasloff notices that the sutures on female frog abdomens, so they, they had to, in this study, they removed their ovaries. So they had to suture them afterwards, put them back in the tank, and they just, they never became infected. And like, I think that if you had a germy tank of water that you had to soak an open wound in, they would probably become infected.
1: Yeah, probably.
0: Um, so he figured out that they store high concentrations of powerful antibiotics in their skin. It's a antimicrobial peptide just a protein yeah um and they're definitely or can be much more effective than our conventional antibiotic like bacteria medications um because they actually recognize the microbe m- membrane instead of the protein from the microbe so um Altering the membrane to develop resistance it is harder for bacteria to evolve and do than okay. it is to alter like a protein. A protein can change relatively easily with one simple letter substitution, whereas the membrane, like if you change one little thing, it'll probably just break. It probably won't work. It won't just change it to something that also works and is more effective at evading. It's it's just it's going to take longer for that to happen. Okay, um, so their antimicrobial proteins are just a little like they're more effective. Um, so. Dr. Zaslav um, was trying it for diabetic ulcers on people's feet as a topical like ointment, and he he thought things were going really well. The FDA asked for another trial where there was <laughs> absence of drug use from the study subjects. But if you want to study diabetics, well, you can't. Anyways, yeah. basically he he sold well, yeah, he sold the idea to a private company, and they're now they're running their experiment. So hopefully something comes of that uh, in the future. Very cool. Um, let's uh, let's let's talk about leeches. Let's do it. So you can find them actually in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, there's clearly documented records about 1500 BCE of leeches being used for treatment purposes. We found a painting in one of the Egyptian tubes that that shows that um, today medicinal leeches, leeches are still used after like severe trauma to help reattach digits or close wounds or something. Um, in the 1800s, actually, herudotherapy was at the height of its popularity. And we call it herudotherapy because the Latin name for the leeches is Herudo medicinalis. Yeah, we named them after yeah. it being medicine.
1: Yeah, okay, that's what I was going to ask.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, herudotherapy in the 1800s is, is, was seen as like, you know, a clean and easy way to perform a really, really old and really, really misguided medical treatment. Bloodletting.
1: I was, I was just gonna say there yeah, has that, to be a that, tie nice, in there. that nice yeah.
0: cure-all treatment of bloodletting. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if you let the blood out, whatever bad stuff is making you sick is gonna go with it. Or you'll balance your humors. One of those two reasons. Because
1: you have too much blood, so.
0: Exactly. That's, uh, even people that were, that were bleeding out from wounds, they would try to bleed them. That might, that must help. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um So eventually people realized, why are we cutting people? It's so messy. The bucket, like, they don't have IVs. There's like buckets and drain. Yeah. Let's just stick a leech on them. It's So much cleaner. So all you have to do is just put leeches on someone. And then when they pass out, take the leeches off. It was brilliant. It
1: was that brilliant.
0: sounds um, super. Fun fact. Herd of therapy was very, very popular in France. Um, in the 1830s, they were importing 40 million leeches a year. Wow. From where? I don't know. Um, Yeah. So just as a note, there are like 650 species of leeches. Only Herudo Medicinalis is approved by the FDA for medicinal purposes. Okay. Um, So what you use a leech for, like if you're going to reattach, let's say, a severed finger, is the surgeon will sew the arteries back together but the other blood vessels, the veins, like they they can't be reconnected. We we just have to stick the finger together and hope they grow together, which they they normally do, and they do it better when you use leeches, because um, so the arteries are attached, right? Mm-hmm. They take the blood arteries away away from your heart, so they're bringing it to your finger. They're bringing more and more blood, but your veins aren't connected, mm-hmm. so the blood can't go back. So, you just get pools of blood and it's inflamed and swollen and hurts. And, and so.
1: And the leeches remove those pools of blood, allowing more time for the, the veins, veins to though. grow back together. Yeah. Cool.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Um, so, speaking of another old timey animal treatment we still use today, um, is maggots. I'm just, just going to tell you. Okay. Maggots. Um, we noticed for hundreds of years, actually, that if a womb gets infected with maggots, uh, it some cases does better. And that's because mm. maggots will only eat dead tissue and they will not eat the living tissue. Right. So they clean up all that nasty dead tissue doesn't get affected. Um, there's some evidence that the Mayans and some Aboriginal tribes in Australia knew about this and used the technique of maggots on a wound. Um, but the first actual recorded time in history um, of we're going to do this on purpose for, for wounds was Napoleon um, in 1829, Napoleon's Surgeon General, Baron Dominique Leray, described uh, some wounds he saw on the battlefield that were infested with fly larvae that were, like, doing better than other wounds. And he remarked that he thinks that it was doing something. So in the Civil War, there were actually times where um, they, like, put blowfly larvae on wounds to clean them. Um, mm-hmm. m- more happened in World War I. Uh, American Surgeon William Bayer noticed that when, when maggots infested the gashes uh, of war wounds, then uh, the swelling was less. The infection was less. Interesting. So Dr. Bear comes back and starts using this in Johns Hopkins in 1929. And he was using it for children cancer patients. Interesting. Um, yeah. For, like, osteomyelitis, where they would get, like, bone infections. And, yeah. So that's where he was kind of using it. Um but, you know, a lot of hospitals started at the time to operate their own insectaries because, you know, gotta you got have clean, to have uh, clean, sterile yeah. maggots. There was uh, labs that started to open to supply surgical magg- like maggots to places that didn't have their own insectary. Um, maggots of the green bottle fly are the most common, which is Lucilia suricata. I believe you. Um, so, so yeah, we still use magnet or maggots. They're like little microsurgeons. We use magnets too. We do. Um,
1: in today's technology. Yeah.
0: And medical. Yeah, exactly. So the last cool thing I just want to, well, I'm going to mention a few other cool things, but I think I can do it in like three
1: minutes. Okay.
0: So spider goat, spider goat. Does whatever a spider goat does is, is my next segue because this is really cool. We made transgenetic goats. Okay. That have a gene in them that lets them make spider silk. <laughs> oh,
1: okay. I wasn't. I'm confused.
0: The same substance that makes up spider webs is now created in their milk glands. Spider silk. Okay. Um, a lot of scientists call it biosteel, it's uh, amazing tensile strength. Yeah. So if made in large quantities and threaded together, they think that they could use it for bulletproof vests and parachute cords or airplane tethers or like really awesome things. Um, they can use it to make artificial ligaments and tendons to support tissues and bones and nerve cells uh, while they grow. Um, artificial, so like it, it'll start to fall apart and then the, like the scaffolding will go away. So it's perfect for that. Um, but, but goats, why, why did we put this gene in goats? Was that your question? Yeah. Okay. So spiders tend to eat each other when you put them together in large numbers. So spider farms are tough. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So, okay. The spider silk gene for the silk protein is connected to DNA from the goat that controls basically in what tissue the protein is made. So in this case, it's the mammary gland and it's made only during lactation. And the cell is then combined with an egg to produce an embryo that has the gene incorporated into his DNA. So that's kind of how they make the goat.
1: And then... The fe- I, so the protein I, is made they, when the
0: female starts lactating.
1: Okay. And then...
0: I uh, can't imagine... It from
1: the milk or... or- Wow. I, I don't okay. know exactly
0: how they get it out like I, I don't know exactly I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine them looking a goat and just like a spiral of shooting out of the nipple yeah, instead right. but I don't know exactly how that goes um,
1: okay I mean I should um, have ended on
0: that one that was the bomb drop yeah Um.
1: will make another note one. for next time yeah.
0: so sea sponges and corals are pretty pretty basic I think pro- they are the most basic forms of animal life sponges are the most basic and corals are close um, so you probably wouldn't guess that they had any major uh, cool stuff going on. But the thing is, coral reefs are dying. Yes. And while that's not awesome, um, scientists noted that some of the Caribbean sea sponges and corals were just like doing amazing. Okay. Everything around them is dying and they're doing amazing. So they examined them and they found that they had a naturally produced antibiotic that was helping them survive. And this antibiotic strips bacteria of their biofilm which is a protective thing that they have, so it makes them a lot easier to kill. And scientists think about 65 to 80% of all bacteria infections are biofilm-based, and that's not what our antibiotics do. So very cool. Um, okay. So a chemical called candida uh inhibits protein synthesis and can kill some cancer cells. That's the second thing we've gotten from sponges. So we have an antibiotic and this chemical, candida sponguloid. And we, yeah, we're trying it against you know cancer. That's very cool. Last thing I'll mention is salmon. Of course, uh, coho salmon actually. Um, so humans make calcitonin, which inhibits bone loss, and we make it in our thyroid glands. Good. Postmenopausal women and people with certain diseases like Paget, or maybe it's Paget. I didn't look up if it was French or not. I assumed it was French, so I said Paget. Okay. Or it could be Paget's I, I'm, disease. I'm with
1: you. It's fine.
0: Um, they lo- they lose bone like. Density. They have bone loss. Yes. Yeah. Um, extra calcitonin can prevent the bone loss and the bone density loss. And um, it's really helpful. So even though fish don't have thyroids, they make calcitonin hormones as well to regulate their own calcium levels. Um, they use an endocrine, endocrine gland in their neck. So we can harvest the land and we can get this synthetic version of calcitonin, basically. And so calcitonin salmon is a generic kind of class of drugs that people take um, if they have calcium regulation disorders. Cool. Calcitonin salmon. The drugs are mia, calcin and fortical. If you care. Uh, Those are some examples. Fair enough. Um, anyways, I'm sorry for 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 being a little bit long, but uh, that was cool. It was. And I will know in the future to end with spider goats.
1: Yeah, that that was a drop. I'm still Did reeling from that one. Oh. Yeah.
0: Science is cool. It is, yeah. Or I could quote Bill Nye, science rules. You could. Thank you so much for listening to this whole episode Mm -hmm. of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.